Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today is episode 107, and I've got a special guest with me this week. Um, Matt of BerlinGrain.com reached out to me, actually, and, you know, all fairness, Matt is a Patreon supporter, so thank you, Matt. And he reached out to me a couple times and said he wanted to uh, talk a little bit about air drying. You know, we talked about different types of kilns, we talked about drying, but he wanted to talk specifically about how to prepare your air drying space. So this was a great opportunity to talk to an owner of a sawmill um, who dries a lot of lumber, both air dried and kiln dried, and really kind of talk about getting prepped and getting set up for your, um, your own drying facility. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Matt at Berlin Grain. So I am pleased to welcome to the show Matt Farrell of Burl and Grain. Burl and Grain is an urban salvage Sawyer log slab provider uh, out in Hillsboro, Oregon, um, near Portland, correct, Matt? Yeah, it's part of the Portland metro area. Nice. So welcome to the show, Matt. I've been excited to uh, to talk to you. We've certainly chatted uh, offline. Matt is a a loyal patron. Thank you for that, by the way. Absolutely. Um, And we've had several conversations over the years uh, about getting him on the show. We actually have tried several times, and <laughs> I've had issues pop up, so I apologize that it's taking me so long here. Oh, no worries. Um, Matt, why don't, you, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Burl and Grain, and tell us about your operation, and give us the sales pitch. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on, Shannon. I uh, appreciate it, and uh, definitely excited to be on here. This is a great resource. Uh, we actually kind of give it out to our customers is when they come in and they have questions. I kind of refer them to your podcast to get a better knowledge of the product nice. that they're getting. But, um, yeah, we're, um, you hear that. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we're, uh, in Hillsborough, just outside of Portland. And we are like an, ur- we're an urban salvage company that, uh, we do quite a few things. Uh, we have a retail space. Um, so we sell to the public. We sell direct to uh, furniture makers. Um, we do custom milling. Um, we do, some custom kiln drying, uh, kind of leaning away from that a little bit. Um, and, uh, we do, we actually make custom furniture, which is some millwork and, uh, some surfacing as well. Wow. What's, uh, what's the size of your staff? Uh, there's myself. I have one full-time person and one part-time person. That's what I thought. <laughs> you do a lot for three people, yeah. two and a half people, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the folks I know that, you know, maybe they started on the woodworking side or maybe they started on the saw- sawing side and they kind of, the, the natural kind of growth is, all right, well, let's start using some of the wood we've sawn or let's start sawing some of the wood I use. And then kind of one starts to fall away because, you know, sawing lumber is a full-time job and building furniture is a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Um not to mention all the millwork transformation and stuff that goes from log to joinery and everything. That's, that's impressive. Um, yeah. And that, stuff. And that's the kind of how that works. So I have my full-time guy is our Sawyer. So he does all the milling and, uh, nice. does some of the work with the kilns. And then my part-time guy is our shop, uh, manager. And then I fill in when he's not there. So it's kind of, and then I do everything else in between. 
So, right. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you run the business and make sure that you're the glue basically that <laughs> keeps it running. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So tell me a little bit about, um, uh, well, first of all, what's your, your, your sawmill like, and then uh, tell me a little bit about the, the logs you're getting and where they're coming from. Yeah, we have a, a Woodmiser LT40 super wide, and then we also have a 72 okay. two inch uh, Granberg chainsaw mill we use for the larger stuff for slabbing. Nice. Um, cool. Yeah, we get most of our wood from local arborists and from like uh, construction companies and uh, developers. So, um, mm-hmm. like, we worked with a couple. There's a larger like housing developments they're putting up in the Hillsborough area. And we worked with them when they were clearing the lots to secure some of that wood to try and salvage what we could. Um, and we worked with like a cool. handful of uh, local arbors and um, from the Portland area and Hillsborough and Washington County and stuff like that. Very nice. So the, the material, like what, what kind of species you're running into? I mean, this is pretty much all, uh, all urban salvage, if you will. What are uh, some of the, uh, the species that you're getting to saw? Uh, we try to bring in as much as we can. So it kind of has a pretty wide variety, but uh, like the regular stuff is uh, Oregon black walnut, English walnut, Oregon white oak, red oak, cherry, American elm, uh, white elm, <clears throat> big leaf maple, silver maple, black locust. Then we go into the softwoods as well with uh, like cedars, like uh, Western Red and Deodor. We do some dug fir, mm-hmm. stuff like that. We sure. try and just take what we can. Then we'll get some like smaller uh, like applewood trees or um, that's about it. I can think of I would some dogwood we recently did. That's, that's still pretty diverse. Yeah. So I'm real curious. Every time I've spoken uh, both on the show and in just my day-to-day life, I, for some reason, I've had a lot of dealings with folks in the Pacific Northwest lately. <laughs> and every all of you guys have your own version of species. You all have, you know, you have Oregon white oak and right. you have an Oregon maple. And, you know, it's always, and, you know, some of that is, as I, I chalk that up to just being, um, Oregonians um, seem to be very proud of your state. So there's always everything has an Oregon yeah. in front in front of it. But I mean, there there is some validity to this. I don't want to make fun of it. Can you tell me, like, what is Oregon white oak? Let's pick on white oak for a little bit. How does it vary from like the white oak that I get out east? Uh, I mean, I guess I would probably turn that question back on you. I mean, it's Quercus Gariana, but uh, what what yeah. what do you see the differences? for the or from our oak to your oak well it tends to be and and this is typical of because what really the the i don't know cultivar is the right word (laughs) i think it's variant it might even say subspecies this is where my you know dendrology lack of formal dendrology training gets me so i'll probably get the terminology wrong but let's just say the variant uh anytime you've got a variant like that growing in um the, the climates that we have in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. And a lot, as, as I understand anyway, the Oregon white oak, it's coming from the wetter parts of the state. Because yeah. um, of course, there's that whole other part of Oregon that people don't really think about. They think, right. oh, it rains all the time. Uh, no, 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 no. A high desert area that has like a completely different. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Eastern Oregon is is dry, 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 dry. You know, right. So the, the temperate rainforest environments that you get in like the Portland region and then running up into like the, the Olympic range in, in Washington, obviously water is not an issue. 
<clears throat> so you just get slower growing, denser growth trees. So Quercus alba, you know, the typical white oak that I see all across the Appalachian region, um, you know, hardness of about 1200. Um, Curiana, I want to say is 14, but I don't know that off the top of my head. Um, the density, however, and the closeness of the growth rings, just the, the growth rate right. of the tree um, is is very different. You know, those growth rings are packed a little bit closer together and therefore the the color just appears different because you've got, you know, it's the the um, the denser woods that's the darker stuff. You know, take something like Douglas fir. Douglas fir is often called to have like a pinkish hue, and it's as blonde as can be. But those really really dense um, uh, late growth bands are very pink, so it gives the whole wood this pinkish cast. Well, the denser white oaks are the same situation where they end up being having a lot more brown in them um workability wise i don't know that it's going to be that much different right um certainly it's a little bit harder um it may feel harder especially for a guy like me with hand tools it may feel a little bit harder under the chisel uh, i doubt your machines are really going to care that much um, but it's just one of those things where you're dealing with a regional variation of there's a lot more rain right um you essentially have temperate rainforests and i i, I stress that word temperate people get confused <laughs> Rainforest? What are you talking about? It's cold up there. Rainforests can still be cold. Um, it's just temperate. It's not tropical rainforest. Right. So, you know, a tropical version of white oak would probably be very, very different. You know, it would still be very dense and, and, and have tight growth rings, but it would be a lot more oily, a lot more resinous. It would have a lot more bug defense type stuff where... Uh, up in the Pacific Northwest, I'm not going to say you don't have bugs, but you don't have the the intense heat and everything where you need more of an oily, resinous defense against it. So that would be that would be my guess. Um, yeah. But you know, at the same time, head a little bit south of you and start moving into like Northern California, and oh, they sure. have their own variants of right. white oak. You know, that are much drier, more that that Mediterranean climate that is almost unique. Well, specifically to Southern California, Northern California, not so much, but, you know, they have a, a, a very odd climate structure down there. It's kind of dry. Sometimes it's wet. Um, you know, sometimes it's cold and dry. Sometimes it's not. It just produces really interesting setups. And then you've just got the whole uh, aspect of it being a coastal region. So wind and salt and all that stuff can do right. crazy things. Um, so I guess what are the other, what are the other Oregonian, well, Myrtle is the one that comes up. A oh, lot. for sure. Yeah. Um, what's what's some of the other ones that are kind of unique to your region? Uh, I think you mentioned just a few of them. Second, yeah, ago. Clara Walnut. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's popular. I think some people like that. Yeah, a few. Yeah, a couple. couple. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, now, when you say Clara Walnut and you say Oregon Walnut, is that the same thing? uh yeah i think so right they are uh the I, same I, species i honestly don't know so. yeah yeah they're, they're they're in the same they're same species as like the northern california the juglans uh yeah, in so. i think yeah yeah probably yeah and that's where things get a little difficult on the lumber side of things like you know the, the dendrologists and the botanists will know and mm -hmm. that's when they get into subspecies and variants and cultivars whatever the heck you want to call it i think cultivar really is much more of a man-made type thing like like japanese cherry is a is a cultivar 
of cherry. Uh, it's been okay. specifically engineered to have a double blossom and make it super pretty and ornamental. That has been cultivated, I think. Um, the natural regional variations, I think those roll under, you know, maybe subspecies or, or species. But really in a lumber business, and especially in like in the, the heavy commercial lumber business where I live every day, no one cares. Like <laughs> it's walnut, right? you know, and, and actually like Clara walnut would probably be seen as a defect uh, because it's got so much more character and color and more purple hues and things in it. Oh, and there'd sure. be some yeah. guy like, Oh, we got to steam that. We got to get rid of that. <laughs> yeah. Stuff. It's not uniform enough for like whatever furniture project they might be working on. They want, they want that uniqueness. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so it's just it's all walnut, and and honestly, like you know, there are certainly variants uh, of, of black walnut, um, but nine times out of ten, by the time they get thrown in the kiln and run through the steaming process, you couldn't tell the difference anyway. <laughs> so you know, we're not talking about that. We're talking in the the urban and the micro sawmill and this kind of grassroots industry that right. I've gotten so excited about over the last couple of years, where we get to embrace the regional variants and and play with those kind of things and and thank goodness for guys like you because th these woods would not get any press they wouldn't get any use or if they did you know it'd just be called white oak oh look at that white oak table well now you know no 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 that's oregon white oak um, right, right. And you can tell the story and more importantly tell the story that it was growing in you know this guy's yard over here which is i think the the cool part yeah absolutely um Think enjoy As that. a woodworker, certainly, um, I'm just I'm fascinated by these little subtle changes uh, based on uh, a regional climate variation or something that gives us an entirely different wood. And I love the fact that we're really just now starting to get access to it, um, even though if you go back far enough, they all had access to it. Like the the sawmill, the business model that that you use and a lot of the guys that have on the show use is very much the same as it was 200 years ago. You know, it was the village Sawyer um, and the trees came down and the village Sawyer saw them up and those those boards stayed within the village and everybody built things <clears> out of it. So right. you know, this this idea of putting on a truck and shipping it across the country and, you know, um, I'd be willing to bet that the Douglas fir you do saw is not the really nice Douglas fir because that's already been sawn and shipped to me you know, <laughs> or people like me on the East Coast. Right, right. You know. Douglas fir grows in the Pacific Northwest and in, in British Columbia, yet you can't seem to find it in, in British Columbia because the minute it gets felled and sawn, it's shipped on a, usually on rail to someplace 3,000 miles away. So, yeah, um, oh, it's yeah. a weird, weird economy. Yeah, and you can, you know, um, you drive around the state and you just see the, the giant operations and you see the massive monologues that, they, that they're that they taking in installation. And, you know, the, the rail actually runs through the yard you know, they're loading the yeah. the train as they're cutting it, basically. Yeah, we actually have a switch um, and lines that run right in the middle of our yard. Oh, and yeah. you would never know it because they haven't been used since about 1970. Um, and the rails are, are basically buried. Um, we buried them in gravel over the years so that you know, the forklifts were bumping over it. <laughs> and the switch, uh, I mean, the fence, the fence is still there. There's a gate in the fence because the, the CSX line runs right behind the yard. Um, and there's a switch out there, but it's been uh, inoperative. And I believe CSX actually like took out the switching mechanism. Mm. CSX, by the way, is the train company. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're national or not, but um, so you can like look over the fence and see like the switch is still in the tracks, wow. but there's no like no box, like no switching mechanism attached yeah. to it because about 1970, 73, just things box trucking became 
more affordable. Um, and while rail is still being used, it's being used like the break of bulk, uh, the break of distribution is further upstream. So it's going into some massive, massive warehouse type facility loaded on the trucks because it's just more cost effective to get it into the individual yards because how many yards have their own switch and have their own <laughs> rail line running into them? Right. You know, I can think of three. <laughs> so, and that's nationally, I'm sure there's more. I just, I don't have any need to deal with them. So yeah, it's a, it's a change in, in, in the world. And I actually had a phone call the other day with a, a rail guy logistics guy who was saying that things are starting to go back the other direction oh, um, because of competition. Um, let's just call a spade a spade because of Amazon, uh, <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, they're using up all the trucks, you know, right, that, that makes that sense, yeah. shipping, you know, uh, Amazon has their own fleet, but then they're also employing all these common carriers all over the place and people trying to keep up with what Amazon does or sucking up all that into things. So the, the, they can make more money that way. Uh, you can pack a lot more merchandise and have more more volume, more margin on that than loading an entire truck with you know something that if you're not careful will be overweight and get you fined, um, mm-hmm. and it only has one stop. So yeah, the the lumber industry yet again uh, is not a money making industry, folks. <laughs> <laughs> For all the people who write me and go, I'm thinking about starting my own lumber business, <clears throat> and my first response is, think twice. Yeah. Do you want to make <laughs> money? Long and hard about <laughs> it. Yeah. yeah. Right. If you do, so, try so let's industry. use that. <laughs> yeah, let's use that uh, um, gloomy segue to to go back to your origin story here and, and say, sure. how did Burl and Grain get started? How long have you been around? Uh, this is our sixth year as a business. Okay. <clears throat> nice. And uh, yeah, this, I uh, was approached by the two guys that started the company. Uh, they started shortly before I kind of came on. Because I had been working in the hardwood industry, and they uh, asked me to come aboard as a consultant at first because um, they wanted to get okay. into the urban salvage. So I had worked with um, one of the partners buying trees from their arborist company, and um, uh, started out consulting and like kind of giving them an idea of how they should lay out their business and what they to expect, which was you know a lot of work, a lot of time, and. Um, uh, then shortly thereafter, just decided to kind of have a go with it with them, um, and start, you know, running the business on the day-to-day operations for them. Very nice. Yeah. And you have, so let's, we're looking at the business today. Um, you obviously have a showroom because you said earlier, selling to the public. Yeah. Um, tell us, uh, kind of what's, what's the inventory in the showroom? Is it, is it? Is it all slabs? Do you have dimensional material? What's the showroom look like? Uh, it's a mix of uh, a couple different things. So we'll have like large slabs, and then we have you know smaller slabs and like some live edge like lumber. Then we have strict like dimensional. Uh, we also have like a cutoffs section with like smaller boards for like project stuff, and we'll have some uh, wood for turners, some blocks, and um, nice and some burls, obviously. Got to have some of those in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then we have like a little bit, of like a small little showrooms with a couple pieces of furniture in there, for examples, to kind of like walk people through if they want to take some of the wood in there to like a further state. Nice. Wow. Yeah, it really is full service then. Mm-hmm. So um, on the, the furniture side of the business, I mean, because that's – it's such a different business model. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you kind of balance? I mean, obviously, you said you've got a guy who does the sawing, 
Um, mm-hmm. And so, because in my experience, I mean, I've, I've certainly built custom furniture in the past. I've done it enough to know that I did not want to make a living doing that. Right. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's just such a client facing so, so much consultation mm-hmm. when you're doing custom work. Or is this more of a thing where you guys are building kind of on spec um, and, and selling what you've already built? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Uh, you know, we'll okay. have, we always kind of keep around a fair amount of like spec pieces, but we do a lot of custom stuff, but a lot of times we're working off the stuff we already have in the showroom. So the consultation okay. parts a little bit, you know, less than it would be yeah. if you're going from scratch. So we go on the table and we like, do you want something similar to this size? We'll have some options for legs, you know, and, um, and, you know, like tabletops and tables are a bulk of it. So there's not as much of the design part of it, you know, um, we can kind of right. like walk through that. I mean, we do some other things that like are currently um, making some like English style, like garden benches and rockers for um, a landscape architect um, from some trees. Okay. That we took down in a garden that they've been working on for like 30 years. So that one's a little, a little more involved. We have to do like some design work and back and forth, but uh yeah, I mean, hmm. most of our customers are pretty easy to work with, so kind of limits that. Still, that's yeah. that's pretty brilliant. Where you're you're sourcing. I mean, certainly there's the uh, the appeal of I'm buying furniture from a place that also solves their own lumber. You know, that kind of single source thing. But being able to go in and like pick out the board um, from a customer perspective, that's like wow, that's really cool. Like what a service, but. Like on your side, that makes things a hell of a lot easier. Like, you know, oh, yeah. we're providing this great service. You know, the catch is it's so much easier on us. So, like, don't right. don't be thinking us. You know, this is fantastic. But I had not actually thought about that. Um, and here's here's where you know my world differs because certainly we have customers that come into us all the time. But um, right. you know, they have very very large projects, homes, and things like that. And it's hard to actually start thinking in terms of uh, you know a table or something like that. It's it's more of I need, you know, 5,000 linear feet of this for that, for that feature wall. And then I need, you know, 5,000 square feet of this for the deck. And it's just kind of a very different way of looking at it. So this, that's actually kind of fantastic. Because I think about um, the pieces that I had built, one of the things that I kind of always offered to the customer was, well, you know, want to come to the lumberyard with me? Um, oh yeah. <laughs> and the one, well, let me, let me say the one time that that did work, it did not work. Oh no, um, what happened? It sounded like a, well, it just, it sounded like a good idea, but um, the woodworker, the furniture maker's ability to look at a stack of lumber and envision a piece of furniture is not a natural thing. I actually mm-hmm. should say not natural, not that it's unnatural. It's just, it's a, it's a learned thing. So someone who does not do that can't see that. So I had this person who was just like, they couldn't visualize what I was talking about. And what they saw was a bunch of stacks of, of boards. And, you know, so like they were looking at some six inch wide boards and like, yeah, but I want it to be much wider than that. It's like, no, 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 no. I'll take several and I'll glue them together in your board. Right. I'm like, well, but then won't that look like a bunch of boards glued together? And I'm like, well, yes, but that's where, you know, I choose the right, you know, grain and you know all the fun tricks that we do to make two boards look like one board and they couldn't get past that they weren't able to to visualize the construction now in your world if you've got a bunch of slabs you know and and let's just say something simple like you're building a slab table so you you basically take board slap legs on it i know i'm grossly oversimplifying (laughs) that but at least you know the top the focal point is what that customer is looking at 
um, that's a, a lot easier. Um, I, you know, when, and what I'm talking about is it was a while ago. Um, <laughs> that's why I got into teaching woodworking. Um, this whole idea of slabs and live edge slabs, uh, it didn't exist in the market. Right. Nobody had them. Um, mm -hmm. So it was always going and looking dimensional lumber and it ended up being very, very difficult. But I think someone that comes to you and, and they have kind of a table in mind or, or, or a piece in mind, a form, a sideboard or whatever, to be able to kind of walk through the showroom, that's that's pretty brilliant. So yeah, it's a, good on you guys. Actually, interesting to say that because like that, that disconnect is very real, right? Like <clears throat> I remember when yeah. we first started the company, even we didn't quite have a machine that could surface everything. So when we would mm -hmm. try and sell a piece that was wider than the machine we had for surfacing, like uh, they would look at a board and just completely, you know, blank, you know, reaction. And that, whereas I'd be like, oh, this is going to be beautiful once we surface it, you know, because the patina is mm, on it yeah. and you can't see what's really happening. Um, and then even like, um, you know, now everything in our showroom is, you know, surface one side so you can reveal that. But uh, you talk about the, the like joining the boards together for like a plank top kind of style. Um piece mm -hmm. of furniture we actually like intentionally like when we built out our office i made sure that we did a couple different plank tops in there so i could explain that mm. process to them so they could see oh okay well this will look you know uniform it will you know and you can get like a beautiful look without having to be a singular piece of wood that covers the entire surface right. area yeah it's it's something that i definitely i don't know if take for granted is the right word i'm kind of blind to mm -hmm. um because uh, I mean, I've been building furniture for quite some time and I work with wood all day to the point where, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm teaching woodworkers now how to kind of see the wood when it's roughs on, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of them like, and, and it's, that is definitely something that takes a lot of experience looking at a lot of roughs on lumber. Right. And even then, you know, most of the woodworking magazines and, and at one point have said, you know, bring along a block plane. Um, which I also say that doesn't really go over well at a lot of lumber yards when you start planing their wood right on the rack. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's not the best thing, right. but being able to actually visualize what the grain looks like underneath it and the gnarlier the board or the gnarlier the species, the, the more difficult that is, you know, straight okay. grain maple is one thing, you know, yeah, it pretty much looks that way. There's just kind of a different color, but yeah, that, how things fit together um i think that's almost more of like a societal like pandemic um we've lost touch with how things are made despite the number right. of how yeah. things are made shows <laughs> that are on tv yeah. we we truly don't kind of understand these things we're so used to seeing finished products um and and if it's not finished it's like you know an ikea type flat pack thing that gets assembled um and even then the panels are all all assembled so um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think yeah, that side of the business alone must be really fascinating to just to be able to kind of educate the customer and, you know, some of it is keep, keep the secrets so that it does look like magic. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so you can justify the price tag you just put on it. But at the same time, I think the more that they can understand the process, the more they will understand why it's priced the way it is. Like, look at all of the things we have to think about. You know, you've got this beautiful board here and you want to make a table out of it. It's not quite as simple as, okay, let's slap some legs on it. Like I just said before, um, that's, that's really cool. That's the stuff that, that I kind of enjoy working with. So, yeah. And I mean, that's, yeah, you know, like that's kind of one of the goals, right. With a smaller business, like what we do is, you know, you want to educate your customer as much as you can. Um, 
Right. You want them to understand the process. You want them to understand like how things come to be. Um, and we try to be like a, you know, a resource in the community. Um, even, you know, from the smallest makers to like the bigger furniture uh, makers that we work with as well. Try to like, right. You know, be as much of a resource as we can. Well, you know, that's a, it's an important point to make. Um, Cause it doesn't really matter how big the manufacturer is or how big the architecture firm is. They don't know either. Um, and that was one of my big misconceptions when I started in the business is you just figure, well, you know, these contractors, they know about wood. They know that wood moves like they had no idea. Oh yeah. Like, no idea. No. You know, certainly I'm <laughs> painting a broad stroke there, but I, I'm not going on a limb when I say the majority of them do not understand the properties of wood. Um, go to an architecture firm that's not actually doing the carpentry work. They're just doing the design. Um, they have no concept of it, but they are actually really fascinated by it. Um, I've been doing quite a bit of um, kind of lunch and learn type things with architecture firms lately and, and trying to basically what you're doing with your customers, right. trying to do that on a much larger scale. You know, as you're designing, as you're putting together this this building or this you know landscape architecture you're putting together, you know, understanding the properties of the woods and understanding like what you're actually specifying. You know, I know you love that color palette and you want it to be an eight inch face, but you have to understand what that means. Like what is an eight inch face in, you know, Iroko mean? Is that even possible? And how many boards do you have to get in order to get the number of eight inch boards that you need? You know, that type of thing really um, opens some eyes. Um, and what we've discovered is obviously the more we can educate them, the more, frankly, the more we educate them, the more they realize, oh, this is like, this is not my, not my area. Like, I'm so glad you're here because I will never learn all this. So I'm just going to call you instead. Oh yeah. Um, and, and that works out great because then it becomes this kind of partnership relationship rather than vendor and customer. Um, now you're working together to design this vision and, you know, source the right materials and, those projects are so much fun because you really get to to collaborate more than just write an order. Um, yeah, it just it, and I'm it's sure exciting stuff. I'm sure, this is something that you, you deal with uh, like on a regular thing, but you know, occasionally you get the customer that you kind of have to walk them back from what their first idea was because it might right. be like physically impossible for that project to happen. So you, you know, you mean you mean every customer then. <laughs> Not just some customer. <laughs> I was trying to be. Yeah. I was trying to be polite. No, I was right. Uh, but you know, like the customer comes in and is like, "Oh, I want a six-inch thick white oak table that's twelve foot long," and you have to explain to them that they have to reinforce their house if they're going to put something that heavy yeah. in it. You know, <clears throat> right? Yeah, and, and rent a special trailer just to right. get it home. Maybe a crane right. to put it in the house. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, you, when you sell the house, it's going with the house. Exactly. I prepared to that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No doubt. There's been, there's been many times in what I actually think um, kind of coming back to, to your business and this idea of just the, the stereotype of your business, the small Sawyer, the, the unique species that you offer. Mm -hmm. What I run into a lot is, you know, as you start to walk that customer back and get at the heart of what it is they actually want, like they come right. to you with this table and, you know, uh, I, I get it a lot because we use a lot of teak, you know, I want it built in teak. Okay, great what why and it really it comes down to they don't really know anything about teak they just want that color right. they want that kind of honey brown color um and the other things they want really have nothing to do with that and you end up introducing them to other species 
that could probably do the job better or cheaper or more sustainably or or let's face it, you know, Myanmar's in the news lately for a lot of political bad stuff. So, you know, all of those things, let's maybe look at a different species. And businesses like Burl and Grain and any of the sawmills that I've spoken to are opening up other options like Oregon Myrtle. Um, it just so happens to have a bit of a yellowish hue to it. You know, you could yeah. you could substitute that for teak in certain areas. Um, you know, white oak is so unbelievably popular. Specifically, rift white oak right now is so popular. And the more that we can introduce people to all the glory that is white oak that is not just perfectly vertical green stuff mm-hmm. and and frankly getting into uh like a coastal species or or a temperate uh, rainforest species like oregon white oak it's going to have a lot more what you might consider to be defects than the quercus alba of of the ohio river valley or mm-hmm. you know the upper appalachians or something and customers start to see that and they start to they they change their minds entirely they go totally different directions with their designs and they start incorporating you know swirling grain you know figure is not a defect anymore and and it's 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 really exciting because there's just so many different woods that we can use um not just from a design perspective but that we can use instead of mulching into well mulch (laughs) or sticking in a landfill or something like that yeah anyway well one of the things that i really wanted to talk to you about is drying Um, Because I know you've got um, a strong background, got some education in drying, I think. Uh, I remember reading a bio somewhere of yours, probably on your website. (laughs) Um, Oh, yes, here it is. Oh, yeah. And, you know, folks who are listening to this, you you have to go to burlandgrain.com anyway. um, But you need to go to their about page just so you can see all the hipster beanies. And the final shirts. Um, how do you know you're buying from a good lumber yard? They all wear knit beanies and have some sort of flannel on. Yeah. Uh, except the CFO. What's up with the CFO with a button-down shirt and uh, a beanie? I don't know. I tried to make him pick from the wardrobe that I had set up there, but he just wouldn't take it. You know. <laughs> Come on, Kelly. We gotta we gotta send them something. Yeah. I, so, um, maybe I'll do I'll do lumber update podcast beanies. I'll oh, I would love to have one of those. <laughs> uh, but anyway i'm getting getting off topic here but uh yeah this is where i was reading it you've certainly um you're a certified kiln technician so you mm-hmm. actually know what you're what you're talking about Got um it. so <laughs> let's talk talk first about what your drying facilities are now right and then let's hit on the fact that you said you don't do as much custom drying anymore so what's your setup look like now and more importantly kind of walk us through you've sawn a log you know log mm-hmm. fell down you got it from an arbor somewhere you've sawn a log where do you go from from there? Uh, yeah, so we're gonna take the stuff right off the mill, and then we're gonna you know stack and sticker, you know, with the sixteen inch on center uh, sticker starting from the left hand side, like on the edge, wax mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then we have um, uh, basically a like robust like carport um, okay. with the roof and stuff that we have shade dryer all, all around, and then we will stack and sticker everything in there and keep it out of the elements um, so that, uh, you know, keep it, you know, especially with the rain in Oregon and sticker stain, right. some of the issues that can come up with that. Um, we keep everything underneath there so that we, that we can, um, and we'll sit there and air dry until we get it to the right moisture content to put it through our two uh, L 200 Nile kilns that we have like 40 foot reefer containers. Okay. Yeah. Say that again. The what containers? Reefer containers, refrigeration containers. 
<laughs> I know, I know what you were saying, but it's just sorry. Here in Maryland, tomorrow uh, weed becomes legal, so uh, I was so all reefer container. Right, I okay. got it. All right, all right. <laughs> I just yeah. Apparently, I was like, really, a reefer container? Okay, never mind. Did you hear that interview I did with the guy at Hempwood? You guys need to talk. Anyway, um, <laughs> so we fill it with weed, each container, mm-hmm, nice. and that's how we dry it. No. Right, it's smoked wood. That's the new thing. There's baked maple. Now there's now there's just yeah, well, Stone now there's maple, the, the right? new baked maple. It's also baked maple, but yeah. it's a different kind of baked maple. <laughs> anyway, we've gotten off topic here. Yeah, a little bit. Um, okay, so you've got uh, you've got your kilns. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that first step, though. Um, you're sitting in an air dry yard, and mm-hmm. you said you know you bring them down to the um, target moisture, uh, and then you put them in the kiln. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know that I'm leading you here because I know why you're doing this, but yeah. um, talk to me about that that moisture percentage. What is, what is that moisture percentage? Is it the same for every board? How do you determine what that is? Uh, yeah, typically, we're trying to get everything below 30%, if it's a hardwood, uh, below 30% right. moisture content before we're sticking it into the kiln there. And we got to try and get it into a space that we can somewhat limit the conditions in which it's air drying. Um, or at least some control over it. Um, and that's why we use that uh, large like carport area with the shade dry so we can keep the you know, sun off of it, rain, any right. sort of like dirt, um, and things like that, so that the degrading doesn't happen prior to going into the kiln. Were- um, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't that kind of also funnel the wind a little? I mean, you're, you're controlling the wind even. So if it, if, if it's a carport, like I'm thinking, mm-hmm. you know, it's open on what two ends, but closed on the sides or uh, it's open on all, you... all, all four sides. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking of like one of those like, uh, arched oh, right, carports. I don't know tide, why yeah. for some reason, <laughs> um, for some reason that's what's in my head. Okay. Yeah. Right. And then so we have shade basically just a covered... on the three sides and then yeah, the front okay. there. Nice. Very cool. So, so um, and what is it? Um, let's just, I know that there's no magic to 30%, but 30% is the number you're kind of shooting for. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell us why. Why do you want it at 30% before you put it into the kiln? Um, because once you drop below 30%, a majority of any, you know, checking, warpage, and um, uh, honeycombing is like limited. And you should be below the point in which the wood movement should be like at its highest risk. Right. Good answer. <laughs> Passed. Oh. No, I'm just, All um, right. no, I just, I, I wanted someone other than me to say it because I right. feel like I've said that like a thousand times on this show. Um, <laughs> and, and this is where um, the, the double-edged sword, you know, as excited as I am about micro sawmills and people starting up sawmills and, and, and selling the lumber, because I think we need that. We definitely need that in the industry. There is a lot of lumber being destroyed. Um, Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, I often on the other side of the spectrum, when talking about joinery and talking to woodworkers, I am often am saying, look, people don't be afraid of wood movement. Like I feel like mass media made people so afraid that their table they built is literally going to explode. Oh my God, the wood's going to move and it's going to like fall apart one day. It just doesn't happen that way. But (laughs) if you stick really wet wood into a kiln, it can happen that way. (laughs) 
Yeah, I also think some so, of, some of that fear too comes for at least from the customer like that we deal with is that uh, a lot of people don't know about any like customer wise don't know anything about the drying process and aren't familiar yeah. with what it entails and then they get something from a guy in the woods with a mill and they don't know that yeah. it has to be dried and then they make the table and they're like I don't understand a year later this thing looks like a potato chip you know yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, the fact that, like I said earlier, contractors don't realize wood moves. There's no understanding that, like, I think people inherently, maybe they don't. Like, maybe people don't realize that a wood, like a tree is full of water. You think they might, but again, maybe I'm too close to it. I'm going to start going out on the street and just asking people, do you know (laughs) this tree is wet? They may not not realize that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna get myself arrested. Is what's gonna happen. Um, but yeah, this this idea that the the sopping wet wood thrown into a kiln now it can be done, but you have to essentially emulate air drying in the initial stages in that kiln. Right. So like I've I've often spoken of a species the the troublesome species like holly. Holly will stain. And if you want it to be bright white, you got to stick it in the kiln like almost immediately, like the same day you felled the tree, if at all possible. But just because you're sticking in the kiln doesn't mean you're cranking the temperature up to, you know, 100 C. It's a it's a it's a schedule. It's it's very much like, you know, a recipe. This Mm -hmm. amount of this amount of steam, this amount of heat for this amount of time. And then you slowly increase the, the the heat while also injecting more steam. Of course, this is a dehumidification kiln I'm talking about where you have that type of um, granular control. But we will like, and white oak is a good example because white oak can be particularly troublesome. It's obviously very sure, prone yeah. to the honeycombing. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, you know, and and the gnarlier the white oak, the more difficult it can be. So uh, we will often buy uh, green white oak. Mm-hmm. Just because you can control we, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, we don't trust anybody. That's what it really comes down That's to. Fair. Yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of look at it that same way. Like uh, sometimes people will offer to sell us kiln dried wood, and I'm always apprehensive because I kind of want to be part of every stage of it, you know, to know that what right. I'm getting is yeah. what I expect. <laughs> yeah, let me see your references first, <laughs> and then we'll buy your kiln dried wood. But yeah, what we will take it, and in the white oak instance, we will actually put it in the kiln right away. Now, like you, oh, okay. we have we have an air dried area, although we have an air dried yard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much bigger than a carport, but it, the the white oak won't go out there. Mm-hmm. Um, it will actually go into a kiln simply because we can control the environment of the kiln. We're not actually turning on the kiln, but we're closing the doors to the kiln and turning on the fans, mm-hmm. um, and that of course keeps it out of out of the wet, but it also um, kind of controls the column of air around it. There's no yeah. heat at this point. And we will essentially, um, I was going to say uh, metaphorically, but no, literally warm up the kiln over the course of about a week. Um, and it's slowly temperatures being introduced uh, into it, but never really, really high. We don't mm-hmm. actually turn it on for a kiln cycle until it's been in there for a full week. And it's still, it's like uncomfortable room temperature, you know, by the end of a week. Uh, and maybe a little bit more of that really uncomfortable <laughs> room temperature put it that way you're, you're trying um, to you're emulating like a summer essentially right yeah so what you, when yeah. you're uh so you have like that consistent you know do, do you use pre-dryers at all either or just just the kilns themselves just the kilns essentially okay. the kilns in that in that phase that is a pre-drying phase essentially right. that makes sense. but the the key there um you just said was consistency so sitting in air dry yard, we all only have a certain number of hours of sunlight a day. And some days we don't have any sunlight at all. And some days we have a lot of wind 
and other days we have no wind and some days we have rain and no rain um we but say it's perfectly mild all the time you know that can be great for for air drying um but when the sun goes down the temperature drops mm-hmm. so we can stick it in our pre-drying stage of the kiln and essentially um if you were to graph it it would be a constant line a constant okay. slope um of drying rather than the the day and night cycle that you would get um or a passing storm or anything like that because above that 30% range when those wood fibers are still quite spongy and soft they mm-hmm. haven't been kiln hardened yet they are going to pick up the moisture of a passing storm um the kiln dried stuff won't that's why we kiln dry it. Um, but sticking it in into that controlled environment, it, it basically speeds up the air drying process. Um, when we have a species that can be finicky like white oak. Poplar, right. we'll stick it in the air dry yard <laughs> for months. Who cares? Right. You know, the poplar is so easy to dry. Um, we'll, we'll stick it out there simply because it's cheaper to buy it in multiple truckload quantities and we just don't have a place to put it. So we'll stick in the air dry yard for three months, six months, whenever we need it, you know, and then we'll pull it in and kiln dry it. Of course, we also buy a lot of kiln dried poplar because it is so easy to dry. But yeah, it's, it's so important to, to pay attention to that air drying phase. And it doesn't have to be perfectly controlled and consistent. Like I'm talking about, obviously you've got a carport. Um, (laughs) So explain to uh, explain to the listeners when you're referring to a pre drying process. What are you guys doing for for pre drying or your pre dryers? Talk to us about that pre drying, as in like during the air drying phase. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're just we're gonna you know we'll have it within that um, carport area, and we're gonna use our uh, moisture reader to kind of track it as it's going to make sure that it's not getting you know too much airflow or any anything else that could cause like early defects yeah um but that's you know that's that's most of the the process there i mean that's what we can do you know there's probably more ideal situations but uh gotta have to work with what we have space-wise and um What what do you do if um what do you do if temperature or excuse me um the elements turn against you um suddenly a huge you know wind coming well i was going to say wind coming off of the eastern part of oregon but that doesn't really happen because the jet stream goes the other way <laughs> so yeah i guess you don't really run into that yeah but if you do get like a big windstorm it's going to be wet air coming in off the coast right right and then um you know like as far as the airflow in the shelter it's already kind of restricted by that shade cloth that we're using Right. So it kind yeah. of keeps things yeah so we can kind of keep a relatively consistent uh um you know, condition for the wood in there. Right. So is there anything else? Um, let's talk a little bit like one step upstream from air drying. You've got this carport set up for air drying. Approximately how much wood can you put in there? Uh, that's a good question. That's uh, 15, 20,000 board feet. <laughs> okay. All right. So you've got some space. Yeah, yeah certainly. It's like 40 so do you 18. run into situations? Oh, okay. Yeah. That's nice and big. Do you run into situations where you've got material that doesn't fit and you don't have any place to put it and, and kind of how do you handle when things start to back up like that? Um, well, you know, so we have other space in, in our yard as well. So some things that we think that can like, you know, when we're working with softwoods, none of that goes within that shelter. Um, cause we, we have okay. more flexibility with that. We're going to cover the units and we're going to, you know, uh, put lids on them. Um, and then some of the other bigger, much larger slab stuff is going to be there for years. Sometimes we're going to tarp that and get it higher up off the ground. 
and um, make sure that it's not getting exposed to the elements, but um, you know, still has some airflow. At least in the yard, the uh, our shelter is only maybe like a small portion of the yard itself. So any excess we do there, but the stuff that we're really turning over on a consistent basis, as far as uh, like walnut <clears throat> dimensional lumber and uh, oak and some other hardwoods that we're working with, that's like kind of cycles through as fast as we do it. We're putting it into a kiln. So we haven't really okay. run run it. We're going to need to add more sh- uh, space as we expand. But uh, for right now, uh, we don't have it, an issue with overflow. That's nice. Yeah. It's still, I mean, it, it takes up a lot of space. This is uh, not, yeah, this, the, it's one of the things that I've seen from the, the small, you know, wood miser owner or whatever. They're just sawing boards and they don't quite realize um, like all the other stuff and how much space is needed and how much time and care needs to go into you know, setting up your air dry. I mean, look at, look at Cremona. Like he's done whole videos on like setting up his um, bolsters to be perfectly level mm-hmm. um, so that he's drying, you know, on a, on a literally a solid foundation. Um, but of course, Matt's got plenty of room. He's got some place. <laughs> <And then some. laughs> a little bit. Yeah. The other, yeah. I guess that, that was one of the things I, I think we we're kind of chatting about before too, is that uh, like when you're setting up an operation, like a urban salvage, set up is that that's kind of sometimes like at the the back of the like your thought when you're trying to set up your operation is like how much room is this really going to take for me to have right space to have this stuff stored you know so that it's not just sitting out in the sun and or in a puddle um but yeah you know. <laughs> yeah hopefully not <laughs> so but you know there are i feel like i run into occasional guys like oh i ran and to so-and-so that's you know he lives out in this rural area he's got a wood miser and yeah i was just sitting kind of on the ground he had a bunch of boards so i mm-hmm. grabbed them <laughs> then they end up bringing it to nice. us for the, the drying and the like kind of correcting what's there so not to mention the possible rocks and the right. silica and all the stuff right. that's you know, eating up your planer blades and all that fun stuff mm-hmm. um talk to me about um stickers what are you using What's the shape of them, species, all that fun stuff? Uh, yeah, we're using uh, like laminated ply stickers that okay. are three quarter inch by one and a half by 48 inch. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're out of a dug fur ply. Right. Yep. Right. That's what we're using. Are they, uh, are they just rectangular or are they shaped into any kind of like, any, you know, the I beam structures or the Z structures? Oh, no, any just, of that yeah, of stuff? just re- rectangular. And so right. with that, we're, um, we make sure that they never are out in the elements that they also stay like underneath that shelter, um, mm-hmm. so that they're not getting wet or creating mold on them. Um, which, <laughs> In- yeah. introducing more problems to the board right. you're trying to air dry. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot Good of great point. other options, uh, just as far as, you know, uh, budget wise, that's just been the most cost effective for us at the moment. Um, there's some other really cool, interesting stickers out there. Um, they just, are about four times as much as what we're paying for the wood ones. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah you can pay a lot for the, uh, the, I can't remember the, there's an actual copyright for this Z shape pattern mm. um, made. Uh, it's, it's essentially like an I beam, but it's got Z stripe like dados cut across it. So it's yeah. minimizing the points of contact with the wood. I've seen that. Uh, they're usually made out of, uh, they're made out of e mm-hmm. nine times out of 10. Um, so right off the bat, you know that it's cheap. 
Um, it's definitely, definitely a premium sticker. Um, actually, I believe uh, Hearn Hardwoods, just north of me in Pennsylvania, uses those. Uh, we've we've got I beam ones made out of eBay. Uh, we've never really found the need to to minimize the contact longitudinally because you know along the sticker. I mean, because the sticker is running perpendicular to the long axis of the board. Yeah. And uh, you know, if you if you do things right, you're not going to get a bunch of sticker stain and um, yeah, I think that's sometimes the really, really fancy stickers. It's kind of like, this will prevent sticker stains. Like, well, maybe you should look at some other reasons why you're getting <laughs> sticker stain in your sticker. Yeah. Well, it's called sticker stain, so it must be the sticker's fault. Yeah, it was finally yeah, like, I, I think the one of the more problematic things with the sticker stain is just the, you know, how is it interacting with the environment, right? Like, is, you know, if you've got a right. lid on it, is the water dripping out of the sticker and then is the sticker getting wet and then staying wet through the drying process? Yeah, things like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, red oak stickers, high amounts of tannins causing staining oh, in the wood. Yep, that that, that happened quite a lot. Yeah. Um, very nice. So then um, the uh, airflow setup, are you using any kind of fans or are you just letting nature do its do its job? Just there? letting nature do its job. We have a good like, cross breeze there, but nothing too drastic, but, uh, you know, and not too low that we need to like add it. But, seems to be working pretty well the, where we situated it on our property. Right. And then the stacks themselves, um, any, any measures that you're taking in the, in the actual stacking in order to kind of control some of the, like, are you band strapping or any of that stuff to control twist or cupping or anything? Uh, no, mostly the weight of the other units are, are kind of controlling, obviously not, okay. not the top unit, but, um, I always found that like the, the banding, was more useful for making sure things don't shift in the unit um, versus like, cause you know, there's the shrinkage over time. Right. So that banding is going to get loose as it's air drying. Right. right? So I, I, how much does that, unless you're, you're ratcheting it consistently, how much does that help with uh, the cupping and movement? That's a really good point. Yeah. I do. I know a lot of people who do that. Um, and, and you're right. Really, the more important issue is to make sure it doesn't fall over and kill someone. <laughs> or, you know, that's the important part. And then the, on the minor side of that, the, make sure that your stickers aren't shifting when you're moving the units around and somebody's not paying attention. Mm -hmm. It goes through a kill and then now you got one sticker slightly off and a little bit of bend in the board. Yeah, which is now set. Um, right. as you put it in the kiln, <laughs> you know, just like steam bending in a form. Yeah, it's interesting. So the, the good news, kind of the, the refreshing part I'm hearing here is, I mean, you certainly have put a, a lot of thought into that air drying step and making sure that, you know, you're reaching a certain moisture content before you go into the kiln. But it's also not like it doesn't require a whole lot of stuff. It requires a good dedicated space mm -hmm. that's kind of sort of out of the elements, you know, it's covered. Um, and it just requires attention basically right. um you know care and feeding to make sure that things are not getting off the rails or anything because i do think that um it tends to be polar opposites right like the guy you mentioned before he's got his board sitting in the dirt and then there's the other extreme where people are employing you know nine thousand different tactics um and it, actually you could probably point to the company i work for uh, as one of those uh, we just happen to have a lot of dehumidification kilns and lately because there's been more kiln drying happening outside of our yard because more companies well like yourself are now running kilns we have not found the same pressure on all seven of our kilns um so we can generally keep one or two kilns in reserve to oh, use yeah. as air drying yeah. um is that level of control necessary absolutely not 
Um, is great. it cool? <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you can air dry really quickly, right. um, but it's totally not necessary. Um, I think the important part and, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, it just seems to me in just prepping the site, having a site and right. making sure it's level, <laughs> making sure it's flat, um, that the site itself is not introducing moisture, you know, so it's not in a mud puddle or whatever. Um, seems to me that's kind of the key to it. And then just paying attention. Yeah. And, uh, you know, restricting the amount of like sunlight that's going to hit that board too is helpful, you know? Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Just putting a cover over it is going to hopefully do that as well as keep the water off, but then also keep in mind as the sun dips in the sky, it's you don't want that sun baking of... right on the ingrain right. and only that one ingrain. Oh, that can cause real problems. So yeah, that's or, where your shade or the water coming off that lid. And like I said, getting the stickers continually wet. Like, you know, I mean, in the Portland area, you know, we deal with a, a lot of rain. So if that's continually dripping onto that sticker, is that going to affect, you know, your boards? Cause you have wet stickers the entire time as they're drying. Right. Yeah. You know, that's actually a really good point. You said that earlier, just, care and feeding of your stickers themselves you know it's it's kind of and i think we run into this and everything where you know it's a tool and you kind of stick it off to the side when you're not using the tool but like Mm -hmm. you know we have to occasionally wax the tables of our joiners and things so they don't rust and you know oil your hand plane so they don't rust you can take care of the tools the sticker itself is a tool um you can't just like throw them in a corner over there and expect that they're going to do the same job over (laughs) and over again it's a really good point yeah be thoughtful about so as a, as someone who's kind of been brought in to to consult in certain places, if you've got someone that is, you know, maybe just started up and they're they're starting to produce a lot of lumber and are basically mm-hmm. getting to the point now where they're like, hey, this is more than just the boards that I'm using for my own projects. I think it might turn into this. Any kind of tips or trips to help them get started on the right foot? Uh, yeah, um, let's say you know. Find the you know find and plan an area in which you want to you know keep that lumber as you're going to go through the air drying process and like just you know be thoughtful and plan ahead on it instead of kind of doing it as a second thought um, and trying to catch up afterwards because as you're milling you're just going to kind of like bottleneck into that part of it right so you're trying to figure out where you're going to put the stuff how you're going to get the stacks you know. Um, uniform and other things like that so and i think in a lot of ways think of it this way if you don't have some sort of plan in place for the the after the milling you're essentially undoing the milling like you're 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 destroying the boards that you put all that labor into actually sawing um if you don't have a good setup for the air drying there's going to be a lot of problems and there's no amount I really don't think there's any amount of kiln drying that can correct poorly air dried material. Right. And, yeah. You know, if, all kinds of bad stuff can happen. Yeah. And you got to, I guess, kind of look at it like if you, you know, you go out and you either purchase or you get this log that you're really excited about and you mill into it and the wood is beautiful and it's absolutely gorgeous. And then you just kind of throw it to the side, you know, and then now yeah. all that hard work into that, you're going to end up with a pro, you know, a product that's, you know, usable or barely usable. Um, and then what you saw coming off the mill isn't what you end up actually having. Yeah. Yeah. That's really upsetting when you think about it that way. <laughs> um, so how do you feel about solar kilns? Have you ever used one? I have not. Um, I feel, uh, I haven't used one, but I, I'm just unsure 
I guess there's probably certain things that would work well in that, but I just don't know if everything would work well in that, but I don't really have much experience or knowledge about it to be totally honest. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. I'm going to talk to a lot of people who've who've run them and I'm curious. I'm solar killing curious. Exactly. That way. <laughs> so, um, because kind of like kind of like we're using our um, you know, pre-drying kiln, you know, basically keeping the kiln turned off. And because we have a controlled, actually enclosed space with fans, um, the solar kiln's kind of similar in that you're enclosing it, you know, different than your carport. You're literally, you know, pulling, enclosing it entirely. Um, and then, of course, you're letting the sunlight come in to actually heat up the space. Um, to me, that's the part that scares me. Um, Agreed. Because I feel like, I feel like that's know, where all the damage is going to come. Right. You know, now there's a lot of folks that say, well, the, the day night cycle, uh, it never gets that hot um, because it cools off the night before and then it slowly heats back up again. And it's all very slow, slow heating, slow cooling um, condensation that occurs, continues to keep the moisture levels up. I'm certain that there are probably ways that you can monitor it and vent it and help control it. But it kind of like at that point, you kind of wonder, like, why not just have a a kiln <laughs> right. like you, I mean, you were speaking earlier about having that consistency like and we we're kind yeah. of discussing it's like so that like but it seems like to me the solar kiln just throws that out the window right it's just at the whim of what there, yeah. what there is yeah and you know sunlight is not your friend when it comes to drying you know air at least greenwood so yeah just right yeah i think it's i think it's the enclosed nature that you know while it's heating that moisture that's evaporating out is staying in there. So essentially the, the relative humidity inside the mm. kiln is going up. Um, well, yeah, as the heat goes up, so is the relative humidity. So that is kind of a, like a buffer or a, a protection. And that's just how okay. a dehumidification kiln works. The, yeah. the hotter the temperature, the more steam we inject. Because, I mean, well, <laughs> if you remove, remove the moisture and heat it up, it's called combustion. <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> it's really bad. Uh, I think that's not um, good for wood, yeah. Yeah, generally. I don't care how popular the Shishugi bond thing is. That's not good. That's really bad. Um, and I think that's where, and that's where the curious part of the solar kiln comes from is, is like, I'm, I like you, I'm afraid of that uncontrolled sun. And the fact that it's enclosed means that it is just going to get hotter and hotter and hotter in there. But it does also mean that it's going to get more and more humid. So I think that can actually, um, deflect the possible damage caused by the sun and okay. the fact that it's an enclosed space means that you might have more control over it. but yeah it, it also feels very wild west yeah <laughs> you know it's like ammonia fuming fuming throw it in a tent walk <laughs> away come back and check in a couple hours is it good i don't know right. <laughs> meanwhile there's volatile chemicals in the air um yeah and i think yeah, that's interesting so I, I think it's interesting too because i know of uh some other like smaller furniture makers out here that like will buy some of wood green and then they have kind of like mimicked like a small dh kiln kind of setup with like some heaters and some dehumidifiers and they like control mm -hmm. with some you know like and it's like like you said like uh compared to solar it seems like they're probably about the same cost and that seems more effective to me and more controllable than doing that yeah yeah, I mean, even even the like the Windsor makers I know that will, you know, steam bin and then put in a kiln to set. I mean, that's as unscientific as a foil line box and a light bulb. Um, <laughs> but in that instance, we're actually trying to to set it in whatever form it's in. So you right. you're restraining it. You're already bending it and clamping it into a shape you want. 
Um, and ideally it's been, you know, riven and all that stuff ahead of time. So that the wood is not, you know, full of knots and completely let to go where it can go. But yeah, it does, it does seem like solar kilns, you could add a lot of control to it, but at what cost? Yeah, <laughs> right. Through a lot of, that point, a lot of just, monitors and yeah. you know, automation into it. And then it's like, ah, you know, a box with a humidifier and it might've done just the same. Right. I don't know. Again, the solar kiln operators out there, I have yet to find a solar kiln operator who's done it for more than about like a week uh, who wants to come on the show. So those of you who are like solar kiln experts, I please give me a call. I want to, I want to bring you on the show because I get enough questions about solar kilns because yeah. it does seem like, you know, a cheap option um, and a great way for like the guy that doesn't want to resell a bunch of lumber, but just wants to is listen to this and going, Oh my God, I've got to figure out my air dry situation because I'm <laughs> destroying my boards. And it doesn't make sense for, for that hobbyist to go and, you know, build a carport, you know, or buy a carport um, and have, you know, 15,000 board feet of lumber in there. So how do, how do they do it? And it does seem that the solar kiln is that solution. I just don't have the answers there. Well, I'll Sounds be like neither do you. So I'll be interested when you have Jeez, that. Matt, come on. <laughs> I'll be interested when you have that episode. Cause I'd like to hear that answer as well. Always, right. always been too. Like right. solar kiln curious for sure. <laughs> that's the best way to put it that's a t-shirt right there i'm making that happen um awesome yeah um well let's see um i think we've hit on it um uh, is there i guess the the next thought is is you'd mentioned earlier about you did some um custom kiln drying and not mm. so much anymore is that due to lack of demand or have there been problems there uh no, not lack of demand it's just we're trying to one is like so every time we do a custom kiln drying uh, job, it's that much less that we're drying of our own material. Uh, oh, so glad you right? said that. So that's a uh, space. And then also like, I mean, inherently custom kiln drying is kind of a problem, right? Like unless somebody's bringing me 4,000 board feet of similar thickness boards and species, you know, there's, you know, cause typically like a customer is going to be for us is like anywhere between like a, you know, one slab to like 1500 board feet that they want to stick in a kiln. Right. And so then you're dealing with a variation of species and moisture contents. I mean, and we won't take anything unless it's a certain moisture content anyways. So sometimes people come there and they'll, they'll bring their slab and they'll be like, Oh, it's at 15%. But you know, they're using a surface moisture meter that reads like half inch into a three inch slab. So that's not an accurate measurement, you know? Um, so right. that's, that's, that's an issue there. And then trying to mix species and, um, thicknesses is, you know, just a, like a no, no, in my opinion for kiln dry. <clears throat> so we try to try to limit it unless I think it's something that can like actually go in with the current run we're doing, or they have a large quantity. Like right now we're running an entire, uh, kiln full of like black walnut slabs that were all cut at the same time at all at the same thickness. So like, that, that will take on all day, but you know, we also get a lot of people that are just looking for like, I've got one three inch thick, you know, white oak slab that was cut, you know, six months ago. And so, you know, we have to like kind of explain that process to them. So just trying to lean, you know, further away from that, unless it's the right project. So we can keep our own wood coming through the kilns. Right. That, and that's, that's similar to what I'm hearing from other folks. And it's, it's, um, I fully agree with it and I kind of fully support that. But at the same time, it's kind of like, cause you do have these people that have 
a log, you know, um, and they've, they've milled that log uh, and you know, quickly realized that they can't get as many board feet as they thought they would out of that log. But then they have these boards and they're like, I need to get it kiln dried um, or they're worried about bugs. Um, believe me, I've sure. got an episode coming up that's going to get everybody worried about bugs. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, Worry about so they're that. thinking I need to get it. Yeah. So they're thinking I need to get it kiln dried. And I often am hearing like, well, what should I do? Because I'm keep getting, I'm getting turned away for the reasons that you just cited. And they're extremely valid reasons. Um, so I'm trying to figure out like, what can people do? Um, maybe that's where the solar kiln thing comes in. Um, but uh, yeah, there doesn't seem to be, just put it this way, as much as the, uh, the micro sawmill and the small kiln operation has kind of exploded in recent years, those very quickly, like the, um, the growth curve is really exponential. Like you go from sawing a couple of logs to now suddenly you're operating multiple kilns. That mm -hmm. happens very quickly to a lot of people. And once you get to that point, you really can't allow for custom drying anymore because you're trying to get your own stock through. Uh, you've got more control over it. You really can't afford to, to tie up a kiln cycle or for that matter, run the risk of, or the liability, frankly, of damaging someone's lumber because you just don't know like what you're being handed. Um, and, and trying to dry smaller lots is always going to be more difficult. So I suppose that's where some of like the vacuum kiln operators come in, mm -hmm. especially those bladder kiln things. Um, if you have one of those, there just doesn't seem to be a small kiln drying in small batch just doesn't, they don't mix. Right. It just doesn't seem to work that way. And then unless maybe you, it's also tough too, because like, it's not a great revenue creator either, you know? So it's like, do I want, yeah, do I want to inv true. invest in this? And then, you know, then it's also in, you know, try to help everybody in the community, but you know, they're ultimately probably seeking out a different person that's milling it for them because they're going to buy it cheaper because it's not kiln dried. Then they got to bring it to right. us to kiln dry it where they could just buy the wood directly from us because it's already kiln dried, mm -hmm. you know? So, but you know, yeah. try to also be, like I said, a resource for the community. So we try to do our best to do as much of the custom stuff. It's just, we have to be selective and, in you know in the future we, we plan on, too yeah yeah and we you know we intend to add an eye dry at some point just kind of for that reason so we can run smaller batches and you know obviously faster dry times for other things but um right that's just kind of where we're at now well i've got a um since i've i've got someone who's got some experience drying white oak um i've got a question here mm -hmm. that i'm gonna throw out to you the uh -oh. guy um <laughs> Yeah, right. And even worse, he's from Pennsylvania. So it's totally uh, different. Right? Oh, I, totally different climate. I right? lived in Pennsylvania. So. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, good. Yeah. You're just the guy here. <laughs> so uh, this is from Joshua, who's in the Lancaster region, PA. So, you know, Amish country right there. He's got um, some white oak that I'm trying to remember came from his brother or like his brother's cousin's former roommate or something like that. Um, but uh, the Sawyer. Um, they had a bunch of white oak cut down. They took it to a local mill. The sawyer said that he didn't want to mess with quarter sawing. So he he slab sawed it to nine, nine to ten quarter thick. Mm. So Joshua then stickered the lumber, stacked it on a flat concrete surface outside in the shade and covered with metal to protect it from the rain. Mm. I wanted to air dry it just as I have successfully done with walnut and ash. I also coated the ends with anchor seal right after it was felled. So he planned to let it dry for a year or two. Um, and then perhaps build a solar kiln and or take it to the local vacuum kiln. However, the white oak um, has surface checked like crazy. Mm. Why did this happen? 
I, uh, I assume it means it dried out too fast. It was stickered and stacked in the shade and covered with tin. The tree was taken down in April or May of last year, sawn in July. Um, so was my mistake getting it milled in the summer? Is this kind of checking typical of white oak? Did it check because it was too thick? How do I slow the drying down? Um, so my initial thought is some of it could be that it was felled and the, the sap was rising and it was really really wet and had a lot going on but um what do you think i mean i wonder like (laughs) what the checking like how much checking is checking he's seeing because white oak checks yeah yeah it's an open poured wood it's gonna check and how much how much of the surface checking is really there right is it like enough that when you run through a planer is it going to still be there or is it just like a slight surface checking that will when you actually ask for s that board it's not going to be there um yeah and it's kind of hard. I don't know. It'd be hard to say because I'd have to see the actual drying conditions. But I mean, it sounds like maybe too much airflow. Maybe yeah, you know, maybe. like it is drying too fast. But also, it's just white oak, and sometimes it's just a nightmare to deal with. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, there is that. Well, and that's the thing. Like, if it was drying too fast, he didn't say that he like put a fan on it or anything like that. So what do you do? Like, how do you? I mean, he's anchor sealed it. I guess you could slap another coat of anchor seal on. <laughs> Well, yeah, or latex paint or something like that. Try and figure out where, Wax. what direction the airflow is coming from, and try and limit it from that side. You know, where uh, that's an interesting this, point. Is there a pattern? The stack, you know, like you know, like if you stick that stack out in the middle of a, a like a plain field, like where there's no restriction and it's got high airflow, it's going to just devastate that wood, right? Because it's just nonstop. Yeah, it's going to be more so than you would have in a kiln, like as far as airflow. Right. You're like putting it in a wind tunnel. Exactly. Yeah. Suck all the moisture out. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. I also wonder if there is any kind of pattern to the checking. Like mm. if it's checking okay. on one end and not the other, it's getting too much air on that one end. Oh, yeah. That's um, a good point. So maybe like rotate the pack 90 degrees. So you're putting your your edge grain to the higher wind. Um, <laughs> we're really, really picking at straws here. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's hard to say. My My gut reaction when I read this was – it's white oak, dude. <laughs> I was going to say, check. I was going to say, um, um, just cut a different wood. Stay away from white oak because it just is a pain in the butt. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> I, actually, I love white oak and it's beautiful wood. It's just sometimes it can be my nemesis when it comes to drying. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, anytime, anytime somebody wants to complain about the cost of white oak, bring come at me, right? Because it is hard to produce, mm-hmm. um, and also it's very easy to screw up, which is why so many people complain about white oak because there's a lot of bad white oak on the market as, as well. Um, but I, honestly, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say, hey, don't play with white oak anymore. But yeah, just, it is <laughs> going to check. Like yeah. that, you know, I, I often I run into this with uh, decking a lot, uh, especially tropical decking because it's that's so dense. And you know, deck a deck is probably like the worst thing you can ever do to wood. You stick it in sunlight only on one face all day long. You walk around on it. You know, um, it's it's just it it's the worst possible condition for wood. But during the bright sunshine, like think of a beach house. It's just getting, you know, radiated on top all day long. And what happens is the wood dries out dramatically and checks open all over the boards. Mm-hmm. And you take a species like Coomer or Ipe that's really, really dense, you will see like wide open checks across the entire face of the board and you freak out. And then like five o'clock in the evening, they're gone. You know, they just close up again right. and you would never know that they were there. Mm-hmm. And this is the wood's reaction to that uneven 
heating and drying that's happening because the underside is staying well not you know, cooler but it's in the shade the whole time so it's relieving that tension and opening up those checks um if it didn't open those checks there would be bigger problems you might have more buckling buckling or actually splitting or delamination or shake that would happen so in this instance it could be that the checking he's seeing could be good um yeah. it's drying mm-hmm. but again you know without without seeing it um right it's hard it's hard to say what i would recommend joshua is um i feel like he gave me a time frame but it started to check what i would say is take a board and mill it well you know just do some moisture checking first let's see where it is um if it's checking put your moisture meter on it and you know check it everywhere and and see what that moisture is like but it might be worthwhile actually surfacing a board and seeing if you can remove the checkings it may just be for lack of a better term, kiln defect, even though it's not in a kiln, but drying defect is, is what you're seeing. Um, I guess the the important part, and from your perspective, Matt, is um, I can't really think of a way that he would slow down the drying. Can you? Other than limiting the airflow? Not really. I mean, it sounds like most of that setup sounds like it's pretty you know, ideal for what he's got going. Yeah, I agree. Um, no, you're and, right. And I wouldn't um, be afraid yeah. of the, the surface checking unless it's, you know, really severe. I mean, that just sounds kind of like white oak drying, like you said. Yeah. It's kind of par for the course. Yeah. That may be that he could, um, I'm just reading back through his paragraph. If he could actually put up some kind of wind barrier, um, you know, and your, your shade, um, curtains, whatever you want to call those things. Um, to, to you know that that are keeping it yeah shade keeping it in shade the whole time yeah yeah that goes a long way to, to, you know, to that actually on the wind and stuff that might be a good solution for that as well because it's relatively cheap to find a small piece of shade cloth and he could drape that over the entire unit and that will restrict, right. restrict the airflow and in any other like sun that may be coming from the sides or ends that's actually there we go that's a good idea yeah. it's almost like tarping it but with yeah a, without the you know, restriction of airflow tarp yeah yeah there you go. There's your answer. <laughs> Finally got there. <laughs> <laughs> we got to it. See, this is what I deal with on this show. It's fun, right? It's great. Good stuff. Well, um, I, I think I think we've hit it. I, I really appreciate you coming on here. Uh, give us a uh, give us one last pitch for Burl and Grain. How do we find you, and um, why should we find you? Absolutely. And then I actually have a couple questions for you, if you don't mind. Oh, okay. Yeah, please. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you can find us at uh, BerlinGrain.com, and on, uh, there's links there to our Instagram and Facebook. Um, just reach out to us if you're looking to have something custom milled, or you're looking to buy lumber or slabs that are all locally produced, um, or you want to come and walk through and pick out a piece of furniture to have made, or something we already have in stock. Very nice. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. yeah, check definitely check out the uh, the Instagram. There's some fun stuff on there. Yeah. Uh, good good wood porn. Good stuff. Yeah, and I got a couple questions for you, just real quick ones here for you. So, uh, sure, you know, so you went to school for music, right? And uh, I did. I am also uh, a musician, formerly a musician at some point. Um, I was just curious, like, we all, do you, we all formerly a musician? So, you went, you went to school for music, and did you perform like outside of school? Um, what did you do with that? I did. Um, I, uh, well, I actually, um, I, pursued the conducting route um, more professionally um certainly got a a degree in voice performance and i i've done uh i've done art song i've done opera i did a lot of choral work um 
did a couple of solo gigs with uh, orchestral ensembles, mm-hmm. um, but really uh, kind of got interested in conducting, specifically choral conducting as an undergrad, and pursued that at the master's level. So wow. did a gig, uh, like the the first job that most conductors get is as a rehearsal conductor. Mm-hmm. So you're not the guy that gets to put on the tails and gets the applause. You're the one that does all the work to prep um, the orchestra or the choir. And then like the fancy guest conductor from, you know, St. Petersburg or something shows up um, and does like three rehearsals and then you do the performance. There's always that kind of rehearsal conductor, even in house where you have, you know, your in-house conductor, um, there is an assistant that will run a great deal of the rehearsals. So I actually got a gig, um, doing uh, a light opera company, a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan type stuff. I was the uh, rehearsal conductor for that. And uh, that gig lasted about four days. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, okay. they, they, they cut the budgets and oh, no. laid everybody off oh. and moved to like an audition community choir, not professionals. And uh, it, was, it was a good experience. They relocated me out, relocated me back. Um, so then I, I quickly went into... Um, uh, smaller spaces doing choral conducting work with either local community choirs, church choirs, things like that, and continued to do um, performance work, you know, addition for any number of uh, performances. When I moved to, to Maryland, I did a couple things with the uh, Peabody Conservatory. They have um, a whole season, and that is certainly you're competing against Peabody Conservatory students but you also can make a go i did a couple uh shows with them and yeah it was one of those things where the uh the conducting job i landed before graduating so i kind of didn't really like put any other feelers out i was like hey i got the job and right. the job ended so quickly that i was suddenly in a situation where it was like pick up gigs left and right and that was kind of that was the story of my music career. And it, it, it was good. Yeah. I had a lot of fun with it. But cool. Never, never yeah. anything that was like super huge that like, eh, that was my big break. But it was also enough to make me realize that I love music um, as an avocation and as an occupation. Certainly one can make a living, but you got to really, really not just love music, but love the game. Right. You have to love auditioning. You have to love that that business side of things you have to love the fact that this is a part but it's also a resume builder and that was the part that i couldn't wrap my head around you know it was like i was just happy to be playing leporello and don giovanni not that what that would make my resume look like so yeah it was it was one of those things that i've actually um, had this conversation uh, as an alum of the university of colorado uh, i've had conversations with music students you know they, they will call on alumni to you know speak to them or you know do one-on-one type things and I'm, I'm constantly telling them look i don't want to kill anyone's love of music just be very aware that it is a business and you very need to be so. exposed to yep. that business very quickly and make sure that you're okay with that side because if you're not you're gonna hate it and you're gonna end up hating music which is the really sad part of yeah. that so i managed to come out of it a little jaded but got away from it before i you know started hating music by any means so yeah yeah there's 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 the short story are you still performing at all or um it's been a couple years since i've done uh anything other than just like singing the local choir Mm -hmm. Um, and that really just comes down to bandwidth 
every time I think about it, like, oh, you know, I should audition for that. And then I realize that I have three other jobs. Yeah, I was it kind of gets in the way. Pretty busy so, schedule, I imagine. Yeah. Um, I keep thinking that I'll I'll get back to it at some point, but yeah, it's one of those things where you, you kind of have to wonder where my hobby of woodworking turned into a career, which turned into another career. So <laughs> yeah, you know, these days uh, I, I do a lot of performing in my own woodshop. <laughs> and uh yeah the other question for is uh did you perform the opening song for your podcast is that you or, or who, who did? <laughs> no no actually well um for those that don't remember uh this was uh, a segment on wood talk uh, and uh mark literally like i think he went to fiverr um the, the, <laughs> like graphic design service and said right, i right. want a jingle and there was a guy on there. Um, I'm pretty sure it's all the same guy. Just you know, that's what I figured. Yeah. Different parts. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> I thought about it. I should. I should redo. I, I have a, a misspent youth in acapella groups. Uh, I probably <laughs> could pull out some barbershop and make that work. Maybe yeah. that'll be uh, that'll be season you know, the third year of the show that I'll, I'll re-record it. That'd be interesting. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> <By the way. laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. I just was curious. I was like, you know, I would like to know more about the musical background, and perhaps I missed it at some oh, point sure. on one of the podcasts. So, well, it's one of those things where when you've been doing this long enough, you've told the conversation at one point, and then like mm-hmm. um, you you don't know who's heard it and who hasn't heard it. So, yeah, I'm always always happy to to talk about it because it's a uh, it was I, I talk about it like when I say it was a great part of my life. It's still very much a part of my life, but that that whole section of my career was something that. It feels like a very long time ago. I guess it was, honestly, about 20 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm so glad that I had those experiences. And I think anybody who has studied music and is not like a professional musician now will tell you they will not regret the music degree because it's it's just, it. I don't know, I just feel like it makes you a more well-rounded person more than anything else. Yeah. You have a great appreciation for, for many things. Um, and there's so many computer scientists I know who studied music, <laughs> uh, you know, or people, you know, or vice versa rather who need that, that creative outlet. So I think it's, I think it's very important for you. Yeah, that's great. So thanks for the question. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about that. And thanks for having me on the, you know, again, I just want to restate that, uh, this is just a great resource for all woodworkers of every you know, level. That's why like, I just constantly, push that onto our customers just to, you know, so they have a better understanding. So you know, thank you for putting this information awesome. out there. Well, I appreciate you saying that. That's uh, always, I, I've heard from a couple people who've said the same thing and it's always kind of like, are we listening to the same show? So yeah, it's nice, <laughs> to, nice to hear that right on. Well, I thanks like a lot, Matt. Yeah. And, thank you. Um, you know, folks, if you are in the Portland area, you know where to go. Um, go, go buy some burls because apparently they have them there. They better in the name. <laughs> we got some. <laughs>